Hello and welcome to Quilt Achievement Markets Uncut podcast, your weekly insight into the topics and trends that we've been exploring for you here at Quilt Achievement. Remember, so you don't miss future episodes, be sure to hit the follow button on whichever streaming platform you're listening on, or alternatively by following hashtag QC Weekly Comment on LinkedIn. I'm your host, Simon Doherty, Head of Managed Portfolio Services at Quilt Achievement. And this week, I'm pleased to be joined by regular podcast guest Richard Carter, our Head of Fixed Interest Research, and also Jamie Maddock, our Global Energy and Materials Equity Research Specialist. Good morning to you both. Now, with October drawing to a close, it's been a challenging month so far for investors, with the US equity market now technically in correction territory following a fall of more than 10% from its recent highs of July. We're also nearing a third consecutive negative month for US stocks, with UK shares also enduring a difficult October. And this is despite them faring better than global peers over the third quarter of 2023. Richard, with this backdrop in mind, if I can turn to you first, there's been a lot of focus on earnings season in recent weeks, but there's also been the fact that this renewed sell-off has coincided with a sharp increase in global bond yields, and they've continued to remain volatile. With the US 10-year Treasury yield reaching a 16-year high last week, moving beyond 5% for the first time since 2007, if I can pose the question, just what's been driving this renewed sell-off? Yeah, I think, Simon, it's been, um, you know, some of the themes that we've, we've talked about uh, really before that just um, just carrying on. So, you know, we, uh, the long awaited recession, supposedly, that was going to strike the US on the back of Fed rate hikes has, has not happened. Um, the data has been very resilient. Once again, last week, we had very strong GDP numbers out uh, of the states that, uh, you know, a few months ago, no one really would have believed could be possible. Um, you know, and we've also had, you know, sort of sticky inflation uh, pressures carrying on. So so that's basically, you know, led investors to price in the Fed staying on hold or with high rates for some time. So, you know, uh, chance of a, a rate cut uh, anytime soon. And then there's also going on um, in the background, you know, some concerns about government deficits and, and, and um, issuance from the US Treasury. So that's pushing uh, yields up, as you say, 5% uh, on the 10 year last week, I think, you know, pretty attractive levels long term, interesting to see, um, you know, bonds getting a lot more talk in the press about, you know, they're becoming pretty attractive. And clearly, I think, you know, the more that, you know, some US companies or companies struggle a little bit with their earnings numbers, the more potentially people might go and uh, have a second look at bond markets. But for now, yeah, yields, yields still heading in a, an upward direction. Great stuff. Thanks. And I guess if we focus a bit closer to home, during the third quarter, we saw some relative outperformance from gilts when looking in comparison to, to some uh, international counterparts. And you know, it wasn't by any means a, a, a positive backdrop for, for gilts at the headline level. But how have these recent moves over in the US impacted gilts? Yeah, it's interesting because you, you know, we talk about resilience in the US economy, um, partly you know, maybe a little bit less interest rate sensitive in terms of the housing market, you know, big build up of savings. Um, and but actually the UK and also Europe, I would say, not looking quite so good. So the data's the data has been weakening and there's clearly uh, more of an impact from from higher interest rates on, on the UK economy, you know, housing um, in particular. So gilts, 
you know, we've sort of forgotten the days of, uh, or seemingly, you know, you know, Liz Truss and the mini budget and all that when when um, UK gilts were really underperforming uh, global counterparts. As you say, they've actually they've actually done okay relative, um, certainly over the last uh, few months or so. So yes, yeah, so, you know, th this month to date probably about in line with US Treasuries, but the um, you know we used to have a, a sort of ten year gilt yield in excess of US Treasuries. That's no longer the case actually. Um, now about 30 basis points below. So they're, they're holding up okay, roughly, you know, relative to US Treasuries. But, um, you know, we've got to say that uh, overall you know, bond markets, sovereign markets are, are pretty closely correlated. So I don't think we can expect a, you know, a big rally in gilts until, um, until sort of Treasuries turn around and start doing a little bit better. Yeah, thanks. And I guess looking you know, across both sides of the pond, it's a big week for central banks. We've got the Federal Reserve's FOMC and and here the Bank of England's MPC both convening in a, a few days time. If you look last week, we also saw the ECB leaving rates unchanged there. Um, and that obviously ended a run of, of 10 consecutive increases um, in the headline rate. Patching that all together, what impact, if any, do you see the recent upward moves in, in bond yields having on these committee decisions when it comes to um, whether to raise rates or not this week? It, it will have an impact. I mean, you know, we've, we've clearly, I mean, I think, again, more so in the States than, than here. I mean, we've heard from Fed officials that, uh, you know, the rise in long-term Treasury yields is kind of doing their work for them. It's tightening financial conditions and, um, you know, ultimately will slow the economy. But I, I but I always think this meeting, you know, these meetings this week, they were likely to likely to pause anyway. I think they've, you know, they feel like they've done quite a lot. Inflation pressures are still there, but they're gradually coming down. Um, and I think it's just an opportunity for them to to pause and, and you know take a breath and, and and see how the data unfolds over the next um, few weeks. I think you know if we are going to get another rate hike, it's going to come in the states and not here. I think the Bank of England, the language is changing towards being more concerned about the economy uh, slowing and then the risk of over tightening with interest rates. So I think um, yeah, absolutely a pause this week from both the Fed and the Bank of England. We've still also got the Bank of Japan. We shouldn't forget those. Forget them. I mean, the, you know, the Bank of Japan have got very, very still very, very low interest rates, um, and that might not be sustainable forever. So we're also going to hear from them this week. So if there is going to be a change, it's probably going to be in Japan. Okay, excellent. Thanks, Richard. And last one for you, and obviously something our listeners may have seen last week. We saw a high-profile move reported um, in Bill Ackman, the billionaire investor, announcing that he closed his short position in 30-year U.S. Treasuries, treasuries and cited an excess of risk in the world at this point in time. If we look at some of our activity in, in recent months, there's been that incremental trade uh, at Quilt Achievia to, to gradually add to, to bonds, um, you know, given the recent moves. Just with that in mind, what are your thoughts on the attraction of, of gilts and other developed sovereign debt at this point in time? And I guess with a nod also towards, you know, those prevailing macro and and geopolitical tensions that we're seeing at the moment. Yeah, it was interesting that one, uh, Bill Ackman. He's done very well out of his, his short, and um, it was quite, yeah, it was a bit of a surprise, I think, to see him uh, close that off at 5% uh, on the 10 year. And we also had, um, you know, comments from, from other sort of 
uh, I don't know, famous, famous investors or, or high-profile investors, maybe I'd call them, who have, have started to sort of extol the virtues of, of bonds again and, you know, seeing quite a bit in the press about it. So that's um, that's quite an interesting development for me. And, I, yeah, it, it does um, kind of chime with what we're thinking that, you know, now we've reached sort of 5% yields, highest highest in a long time, um, given, given the sort of, you know, Slight slowing in some, you know, certainly UK and European economies. The, the, the rollover a little bit inflation, uh, the fact that central banks are probably close to peaking or at the peak in interest rates suggests that bonds at this level um, do look attractive. So, as you say, as you rightly say, that's kind of um, what we've been doing with, with sort of for client portfolios at Quilt Achieve it, just just gradually adding um, to fixed income. I mean, I guess the sort of you know another question could be. Um, you know, when do yields fall? When do we get a turnaround, a big, big rally in bond markets? I mean, it's the macro developments uh, that we're seeing in Israel. I'm not, you know, at the moment, don't seem to be having a, a huge impact. I mean, clearly, if um, oil prices were to go up sharply, that would not be so good uh, for bond markets because that would, you know, add to inflation pressures. I think what we're what we're waiting for and what we're gradually expecting is that, that you know economies will slow, um, and um, you know, talk of recession. Uh, will increase again more more so here than than in, in the US and I think once you once you get that once you get slower growth you know then um, there will be there will be more sort of confidence that central banks are uh, finished uh, hiking rates and the next move ultimately will be lower interest rates and at that point I think bonds would would do pretty well but uh, as I say we're not quite there yet but that's where we think we're heading. Brilliant thanks for your thoughts Richard. I think if we move on now from the world of bonds and Jamie, if I can bring you in, um, we've just been through a big week for corporate earnings. Uh, headlines dominated by some of the big tech names that were discussed by Fraser and Ben on last week's podcast. And I think it's fair to say we've we've seen a decidedly mixed reaction across the board. And it does appear that we're in an environment that's proving quite punishing for stocks that miss analyst expectations. If we if we turn away from from big tech, very interested to hear what you've seen so far in what is admittedly quite an early stage of, of the earnings season for you across both the energy and the materials sectors. So just very briefly on the materials so far, we've had some of the production output updates from many of the mega mega miners. And, you know, maybe no surprises there. But just to summarize the um, the impact of, I guess, constrained spend and, and inflation in that environment, meaning basically your dollars have to go further on an on a equal basis to try and adjust for the higher inflation, but absolute spend is, is unchanged. Production output for the majority of them have been pretty mixed. So there's been no real meaningful uptick in the output. And then in fact, many of the starting to show some declines on a year over year basis. So I think that's consistent with the trend of what we've seen more broadly across the sector, which is that years and years of constrained spend to try and ensure um, handsome shareholder distributions are available is an is inevitably passing through into meaning the output is is coming to the point whereby it's getting challenged to actually grow. Now, against that backdrop, of course, as we enter the energy transition, that's going to be an increasing challenge of trying to deliver more, as in more output, in, in, with whilst at the same time reducing emissions, but also importantly, and ensuring the shareholder distributions are maintained at a high level to really. Um, I guess, deliver what it is that investors want at the moment. At some point, we may transition from that in the sense of being able to give up some of the shareholder distributions to be able to increase output for the time being. Everybody wants it all, which is higher shareholder distributions, higher output, and um, 
conservative spend. Flip it over to the energy sector. So there we've had a couple of the US majors have now reported. So Exxon and Chevron have reported. And I think it's interesting what the, the, the single overriding takeaway from those is that the, the downstream businesses have been the laggards. And I think that's interesting from the perspective of we are seeing some of the negative impact of the higher oil prices come through in some of their earnings streams. So, of course, the the war in Israel and the broader concerns that, that might spill over into the region, what that's done is that it's ultimately pushed up oil prices even on a short-term basis, even without there being any actual fundamental disruption to supply and there being ample spare capacity. This is largely held within Saudi to respond to a more broader escalation in, in the war. But for the time being, there's been no direct impact in supply. But what has happened is oil prices have gone up at the same time as demand is is tepid to, to flagging. And as a result of that, refined product margins have compressed. And because, you know, historically, that is what you would ordinarily see with an integrated oil company as oil prices rise, the, the, the margin that you capture within the refining business will go down, hence the name integrated. But for the prior two years, we've had this really peculiar setup whereby we've had very, very strong demand from the consumer and industrial. So we've actually seen, despite higher oil prices, we've seen higher refined product margins as well. And that's really supported the earnings of many of these majors. So it's interesting that after a period of, of actually, I guess, unusually or surprisingly strong demand this year against the backdrop of these higher interest rates, we're probably starting to see the impact, the negative impact of the higher oil prices weighing on the fact that demand is already under some pressure from the higher rates. So I think that's something which is um, probably I had anticipated we'd see some of that early in the year. Um, in September of last year, I thought that would be start to be more evident. There's been a resurgence in demand in the interim largely driven by China, in fact, and as a consequence of that, earnings have been supported for a longer period of time than I would have anticipated. Great stuff. Thanks, Jamie. And you and I spent a bit of time on the road last week and, you know, in discussions ahead of today's podcast, um, looking a little more structurally at the long-term themes within the sector, you highlighted an interesting report from the International Energy Agency on the subject of peak fossil fuel demand. Would you be able to just elaborate upon that for the benefit of our listeners? Yeah, and it's a it's it's an interesting report that was published. It's an annual report that's published by the International Energy Agency, and they always put a single point on it. And the and the the headline grabbing um, line was peak oil demand in 2030. And I always think that's. It's important to understand what is actually beneath that headline. And many people, when they would think about peak, they think about an alpine peak. So basically a sharp rise and a sharp fall. But whilst that is the case for the net zero scenario for coal, whereby it's envisaged that in order to get to net zero by 2050, coal will, as a, as a mix of within the energy, will have to decline very rapidly. But when you look at oil and gas, it's a much, much different picture. So whilst in an absolute sense, it truly is the peak, it's much more like I, I would categorize it more as a plateau as opposed to a peak in the sense of there is projected to be a sharp fall off in the need or demand for oil and gas beyond 2013. And in fact, it's more like a undulating peak is the way I would describe it. So I think Many commentators would, would categorize the peak in oil demand being 2030, but I would say let's think about it being a more plateau. And in fact, when we think about the energy transition, the, the, the need for the oil supply to remain 
um, and gas too for that matter, more so to remain into the 2030s is, is going to be really critical to ensuring that we have an energy transition which is as, I guess, low volatility in price terms as we possibly can have because for the time being, renewable energy supply is being added at a rapid rate. Um, the spend that's going towards that, it has surpassed fossil fuel spend quite meaningfully by now, but the supply to the mix will lag to some extent and as a result of that, we really need to maintain oil supply and gas supply well into the 2030s bill to ensure the transition is not going to come with extreme price spikes. And as we've observed in the last year, whereby, you know, the invasion of Russia, um, the, the invasion by Russia into Ukraine caused this very, very rapid gas price spike. And I think that really draws into attention how finely balanced the energy markets are and how problematic a, a, a safe transition is going to be into the 2030s. When I say safe, I mean one in which does not expose consumers of these um, of energy to exceptionally high prices at a time whereby they're having to deal with many different challenges. No, that's really interesting. Thanks. And I guess throwing all that into the mix, one of the the other prominent themes we've seen of late has been some high profile corporate activity in the energy sector. And again, for the interest of listeners, it'd be quite it would be very good to get your thoughts on what's driving these moves and, and potentially what the implications of them are as well. Yeah, so at last in the last few weeks, really, now we've seen two very, very large deals both in the sense of the billions of dollars that have been spent, but also in the context of the size of the transactions that both these companies have done relative to their own history. So just to be clear who we're talking about, we're talking about Exxon's acquisition of Pioneer and Chevron's acquisition of Hess. What's interesting about both of those transactions and oil, oil M&A, emerging acquisitions are fairly commonplace through history. But what's interesting about these two transactions are that they're both share-based deals. So that's to say that they're not ordinarily when you see activity pick up, particularly when there's cash involved in any acquisition offering, that it can be quite indicative of a late cycle exuberance and overexcitedness about the opportunity that exists, particularly when companies are flush with cash and have got short of ideas of what to do. And essentially at the time whereby the distributions are already quite handsome for both Exxon and Chevron, you know, in the context of Exxon, you're getting about an 8% total shareholder return. So in the, that's from the dividend and the share buyback. And in Chevron's case, and now 12% total shareholder return. So as it relates to compensating shareholders, they're quite handsome in the context of history and therefore in a period of time whereby there's lots of cash flying around what do you do with it deals are the next thing that companies think about but what's interesting is that they haven't done it with cash they've done it with shares which i think um in many respects talks to i guess a more conservative outlook they're taking with respect to the current oil price and i think really they are i would see this as a, a demonstration of the belief that whilst they're experiencing these super high oil and gas prices they're not the planning prices so they're not the price in which they're using to base their business economics and investment strategies on if we dig a little deeper into that too they're effectively doing what you would expect from a fairly low growth sector to do well, i say low but to negligible growth sector to do that is in order to deliver earnings and cash flow growth to shareholders to try and warrant um to go and give them something which is an attractive shareholder return and the dividends and and supplemented through the buyback, they're basically buying out 
cheaper or relatively cheaper to their own valuations companies and extracting the cost that they can and then trying to deliver earnings growth that way. So I think that's indicative of a, of a, a fairly, I guess, mature market and one which is in their perspective, the actions they're taking demonstrates an awareness about the, um, the, the lack of duration or the short duration of these high oil and gas prices that we're experiencing at the moment. We haven't seen, so, so far all the transactions have been focused in the US. Both transactions have basically added oil to the mix. In Exxon's case, it added US shale exposure. And in Chevron's case, it added offshore oil exposure, both addressing relative weaknesses or shortfalls in each other's businesses with respect to their upstream. And in fact, in a post-deal um, scenario, both businesses look much more similar with respect to their exposure to short cycle shale, but also long cycle oil. But it's notable that both transactions have bulked up their exposure to oil. And in fact, now more so than before, makes them a greater difference between the European and the US oils as they think about capital allocation. So more or less negligible amount of money um, it, for the US majors being assigned to the energy transition relative to the European majors, which continue to put 10, 15% of their capital budget towards energy transition related spend. Now, the question then comes is what might we see similar transactions made by the European majors? There had been some speculation that perhaps a US major may even come and buy one of the European majors. I think with the recent transactions that becomes less likely and therefore maybe the opportunity for a European major to perhaps buy a renewable energy company that would be more consistent with their existing strategy. But of course the pressure that political landscape is putting upon them to try and address these energy price concerns may mean in fact we actually see them do some other sort of transaction that counter to what they've been doing more recently bolsters up their fossil fuel exposure. That's great. Thanks very much, Jamie. And thank you also to Richard, um, both excellent insights over the course of this update. And thank you, of course, to you for listening as well. We love to hear from you. So please do review the show wherever you're listening. Share it on social media and tag us at Quilt Achieve It. And to make sure you don't miss a future episode, please tap the subscribe button. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, head over to our website, www.quiltachieviot.com, where you can read the accompanying market overview, as well as subscribe to our weekly comment newsletter. You can also stay up to date with our thoughts on market news, industry insights, and our upcoming events and webinars on our website or our social media pages. Finally, if you have any questions you'd like to ask one of our experts for our next podcast, then simply ask them via the weekly comments page on our website. And that's it for today. So thank you again to Richard and Jamie for their input and to all of you for listening. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>